Let's keep worshiping. Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 18 to 26. Philippians 1, verses 18 to 26. And great singing this morning, that last song, it's powerful. I didn't even realize how much it corresponds with this book as a whole. I challenged you a few weeks ago to read through this epistle with me on a weekly basis. I hope you've been doing that. And maybe even you too can see that connection. Yet not I, but Christ in me. Paul is delighted in this fellowship of the gospel because Christ is empowering his efforts. And so I trust that he'll do that now as we look to his word again. Philippians chapter 1, looking at the second half of verse 18, all the way to verse 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. To open up our time together, how would you like to play a little game? We could even add a wager. $1,000 per round. You never thought you'd hear that from the pulpit. (laughs) All right, it's pretty simple. It just involves this little coin here, and the rules are as follows. I'm going to flip it. You make the call. Heads, I win. Tails, you lose. Are you ready? The inevitable win is something that we don't often experience. We know that life is not win-win, but typically win-lose. I mean, from the cradle to the grave, we go about making decisions most of which we think are a win, but sometimes end up being a loss. Most of the time, though, it's somewhere in between. The decision that we make was a little bit of a win and a little bit of a loss. It's it's a mixed bag. When you start off in early life, it's not that consequential. It's normally this hobby versus that hobby. Uh, whether to play this sport versus that sport, to be friends with these people versus those people. But the older you get, it seems that uh, the, the more impact the decisions will make, the bigger the win or the loss. Uh, whether you choose to go to this college or that college, to marry this person or that person, to choose uh, this career versus that career, and <laughs> they're not an inevitable win-win. 
Sometimes we look back and we say, yes, that was absolutely the right one. Sometimes we look back and go, I should have done something different. But never an inevitable win. Said decisions continue. They continue on into later life when you have to determine whether to retire at this age or that age to end up living in this place or that place. And it seems that we never really get the chance to say, heads I win, tails you lose. But what if there were? What if there were a way to play the game so that the win was inevitable? Now that would be cool, wouldn't it? To know that no matter what decision is placed before you, it's going to automatically lead to the best outcome. I'd like to play that way. It'd be stinking amazing to know that whatever decision I make is going to end up being a win for me. They're all win-wins. And believe it or not, such inevitable wins are possible if, if you're playing the right game. If, a huge if, you have the right win. Contrary to the rigged midway games of life that mar our experience in this world, Paul models for us a life approach that leads to inevitable enjoyment. A true win-win scenario. Indeed, what you see in this text that you've just read is truly modeling. He is modeling something. Now, The content of the passage that you looked at at first glance just seems to be a harmless personal update at the beginning of a letter. If you've been following us in the study of Philippians, you're uh, quite aware of the fact that Paul is like just loves these people, these Philippians. He considers them to be partners in the gospel, so he writes them a friendly letter. He infuses it with a lot of Christian terminology. You wouldn't expect anything any different. And as you would normally expect in a friendly letter, From someone especially who's endured the kind of duress that Paul has endured, you would expect a personal update. We know that he has been facing some life-threatening and liberty-restricting circumstances. And yet, in the middle of this, just remember this content, he actually writes to them and says, Hey, it's it's going great. (laughs) I'm under house arrest, but don't worry, everything's awesome. To quote Emmett from the Lego movie. Like, he just thinks that it's fantastic. Not only are things good now while he's sitting there in prison, but the the verb tense changes right at this particular point in verse 18 where we begin reading. And he's going to say something else mind-blowing. Hey, not only are things good, but they're going to be good. Not only am I rejoicing, not only am I delighted, but I will be delighted. Now, I want you to remember his, his circumstances. He's under house arrest. He's basically in jail awaiting uh, this trial for his preaching of the gospel, which could have been viewed as some type of sedition. And there's true prospect of execution. <laughs> and he's saying, hey, it's all good. 
It's all good. It's, it's a win. It's a win. No matter what happens in this thing, you noticed it as you read it, no matter what happens coming up, I'm going to win. I'm delighted. And you should be too. Now, that's just the personal content of the letter. I made a statement a little earlier I've yet to justify. I'm telling you that that is not just the way that Paul thinks. I am arguing this morning that that is the way that he thinks you should think. It's one thing just to meet that kind of odd half, I mean, like glass half full kind of guy, you know. But it's something else entirely for it to be presented in such a way that you should be that kind of person as well. You say, Justin, on what basis would you actually say that what Paul is doing here isn't just a personal update, but it's actually a paradigm for the way we should live? Well, a few things. First, back in verses 9 through 11, he already prayed for this. He prayed that they would have this abounding love that would value the things that are most important in light of eternity. He's prayed for this. Not only has he prayed for it, but then he's actually going to like command it or pursue it later on in the letter. The very attitude that he is exemplifying here, he will exhort, where he tells them to rejoice in everything, to complain about nothing. <laughs> so kind of like a wise parent, I give some advice to men, I don't do this well, but a, a wise parent would actually model picking up everything in the house for the children before they tell them to clean it up. Paul here is actually modeling the kind of response that he's going to call for them to have before he ever calls for it. And this will be totally justified in future sermons. But now, I just want you to see that Paul actually offers a perspective on life that is actually a win-win, but only, only, only if Christ is the win. It's like he's playing a different game than most of us play. It seems like it is because he is indeed playing a different game. He is commending for us a different win. In fact, friends, this is just another way for me to say what I said last week. Last week, Paul exemplified for us how to measure what matters. This week, he's defining for us what the real win is. It's the same thing, just past tense, he's talking about the advance of the gospel. Here, present and future tense, he's talking about the magnification or the praise of Jesus. And he's commending it to you as something to look for, as a way to angle your life, a way to orient yourself. And this is good news for everyone. I don't think this is a... Um, a condemning thing for you. I think this should actually be an encouraging thing for you because deep down in our hearts, we all know that from time to time, we get distracted and Christ truly isn't the win for us. Other things end up creeping in. And for some of you, this could be good news because, frankly, Christ has never seemed like a win for you and you would wonder how he could be a win for anybody. If you, if you want to know the heartbeat of the true Christian faith, like how it actually runs, you're, you're here at a good day today. Because I want to help you see through this text why we would say that Christ is the ultimate win. But the way to do that is hard. It's, it's hard. I'm confessing 
a, a, a weakness on my part. I have wrestled over this all week long, looking at the second half of verse 18 down to verse 26. And how do you diagram, how do you outline somebody's flow of consciousness? Like if Paul was actually writing like an argument, like an essay, you would be able to say, oh, proposition, main point number one, main point number two. But that's not what he's doing here. He's writing a letter. And I don't know about you, maybe your letters are different than mine, but normally when I'm writing a letter, it is flow of consciousness. It isn't, therefore, revert back, please, to Roman numeral number one. No, there's none of that. It is just, hey, this is what I'm thinking, and it's just coming out through the pen. That's exactly what's going on here with Paul. So it is admittedly difficult for us to outline, especially you note-taking types who want like a really clear outline. So I'm not going to give you an outline. I'm going to give you a sentence. <laughs> and you can take it and apply it to the text, and it may help make, uh, make things clear. So here's the sentence that I think kind of summarizes what Paul is communicating here through his example. When Christ is your aim, these are your options. When Christ is your aim, these are your options. Last time, when Christ is your aim, when you view Christ as the win, these are your options. Now, let's just look at the first part of that little sentence, when Christ is your aim. Notice how Paul models for them this aim that thinks of Jesus Christ's glory and honor above all else. He says uh, in verse 18, be yes and I will rejoice. Why is he going to rejoice? Why does he know that he's going to be happy? Verse 18, I mean 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, Paul is pumped, he's excited because his current circumstances, this, as it's labeled in the text, the fact that he is potentially sitting on death row, he doesn't know yet, this circumstance is going to turn out, listen to this, for my deliverance, for my deliverance. Maybe some of your translations actually read, for my salvation. That's the literal Greek word there. But what, what is Paul so excited about? What, what does he mean that these circumstances are going to turn out for my deliverance. There's a few options here, and I don't normally go through all this, but I think that you need to know this. Because the way that it's currently translated, deliverance, you think that Paul is pumped and beyond happy because he's going to get out of jail. Like, I'm kind of hoping, you know, like, actually, I'm really confident here that I'm going to be delivered from this hot water situation that I'm in. That's how most of us would actually, like, interpret that. We read that. We're like, Hey, Paul's just, he's got a positive attitude. He's hoping that he gets out of prison. And like, it kind of makes sense. You would see that maybe that's what Paul's talking about, except for one huge, huge oversight. Verse 20, where he actually says, as it is my eager expectation, whatever this deliverance is, it accords with his eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by what? Death. Well, friends, if he's just hoping for personal deliverance, he's not going to be like all that excited if he ends up dying. But here he includes death into whatever this deliverance is. 
Okay, so it's not just him getting out of a hot water situation. Check. Well, what if we go with the salvation aspect? Some people say, hey, you know what Paul's just really excited about? He's just happy to be in Jesus. He's just happy that no matter what happens, he's going to be saved in the end. He's going to be rescued from this life. He's going to be like just benefiting from Jesus. And certainly that fits with the death interpretation, but it doesn't make much sense for something else in verse 20. Look at verse 20 again. Or excuse me, verse 19. For I know that, notice this, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my salvation. Friends, when is there ever a day on God's green earth when my salvation depends on your prayers? Is Paul like wondering whether or not he's really a Christian and he's hoping that they just like pray him into the kingdom? Absolutely not. So what in the world is this thing talking about? Like, how is he defining the win here? If it's not just final salvation through death, and it's not just deliverance from temporal circumstances in life, what is he referring to? Well, what's interesting, I wouldn't have known this. Thankfully, people smarter than me and know a lot more about the Bible than I do have helped me here, so I'm just acknowledging this. That the phrase, this will turn out for my deliverance in the Greek, is actually a phrase that is taken directly from an Old Testament passage. Job chapter 13, verse 6, the Greek version of the Old Testament, you would see this exact phrase. Job 13 is an interesting text because it is in that particular spot where Job, you know, he didn't do anything wrong, right? I mean, he was righteous above all men on the earth, and it says... Like, he's just getting it handed to him, like, from his friends. And Zophar, in particular, has said, hey, you know why you're suffering right now? It's because you're sinning. And Job, like, stands up to him like a man and says, absolutely not. God will deliver me from your opinions. He will, another way you can translate it is vindicate me. He will put me in the right. In the Old Testament mindset, in this, in this conception that they had of cosmic retaliation, cosmic justice, like what I guess modern Indians think of as karma, like that, that mindset was prevalent so that if you were doing, if you're experiencing any bad, it must have been because you did something bad. And Job is saying, no, you can't think of me that way. Absolutely not. God will vindicate me. God will rescue me from your errant opinions. I am in the right, and it will be seen in the heavenly tribunal. It's not just salvation. It is vindication. He will, pr he will be proven right. And, and notice this, Paul, and if you don't get this, you don't get Paul. Paul has so personally identified with the gospel. He is so personally identified with Jesus. Listen to this. That for him to succeed is for the gospel to succeed. For him to be maligned is for the gospel to be maligned. And now I want you with that in mind to look at verse 20. He says, this deliverance accords with or as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You know what Paul's saying here? He says, like, look, I'm going to be vindicated because Christ is going to be made known to be the king that he truly is. I'm being put on trial because some people Rome in particular, the Jews in particular think, oh no, he's proclaiming Christ as king, but Christ really isn't king. 
some other is coming that will be king, or Caesar himself is king. And Paul is saying, no, I'm in the right. Jesus is actually the king. Let me use a gambling analogy. Paul is confident that he has backed the right horse. He knows that whether he lives or whether he dies, people will eventually know and come to recognize that the Christ that he proclaims is actually king. He is in the right. He wins. He has the right allegiance. Friends, there are these times in our life where we have to make certain decisions not knowing how, the, how things will ultimately end up. Every one of those things that I mentioned in the introduction, you don't really know how this friend is going to serve you versus that friend, or this career versus that career, or this house versus that house. You think you know, but you don't really know. What Paul is saying here is, I've made a decision to align myself with Christ in such a way that it's going to affect my ultimate outcome. And here's what I know, that in the end, I will be proven right. There's an interesting secular example of this uh, in the 1984 NBA draft. It was a moment of unknowns. Because in that particular year, there would be this North Carolina point guard by the name of Michael Jordan who would show up in the draft, and everyone knew that he was good, they just didn't know how good he really was. As evidenced by the fact that the first two teams in the draft actually picked somebody else over him. And then the Bulls, interestingly, if you follow the history of this, actually at first were thinking, we'll just get Jordan so that we can trade him for some other guy. I'm not even going to mention the dude's names because you wouldn't know them. <laughs> and yet ultimately, even though it wasn't like they weren't too confident in their decision, they land with Michael and it forever changes the trajectory of the organization. They backed the right horse. They didn't know. They couldn't know. But Paul from the very beginning, says, no, 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 no. I know that I am backing the right king. There's not a future Jewish king coming. It's not Caesar. It is Jesus. I have seen him. He has risen again from the dead. This will be vindicated. I am not in the wrong to suffer on account of this king. I am in the right. This is the win. As long as Christ is magnified, I don't care if it happens by my head getting chopped off or if it's me going on to preach many more days of life in this body. Jesus is the win. This is the message that he proclaims. And so that is why I say, friends, that, that Christ is when Christ is your aim, these are your options. So Paul has let us know that his aim, his win is Jesus. As long as Christ is magnified, as long as Christ is honored in his body, he sees it as a total win. And don't get too hung up on the words, honored, magnify, praise, whatever. It just means make Jesus look good. That's his aim in life or death, and it's a win for him. So knowing that that is where his heart is, that is what his aim is for, that is what he views as the win, these are the options. Now, at this point, 
those of you who are note takers, you could start a little ledger sheet. <laughs> because these are your options, colon, and you're going to actually want to put the options that he gives here. Now normally I would say that you would make a list at this point of pros and cons. But Paul doesn't mention any cons. So what you have is a list of pros and pros. <laughs> uh, you have a list of just all positives. It's like, you know, that, that feeling that you get sometimes like when you are after lunch and you want to eat at this place or that place. You don't see a loss to any of it because you're hungry. Either one's a win. So you start listing out the benefits. <laughs> this is exactly what Paul is doing here. He sees this as an inevitable win, life or death. But he's going to write down on his little ledger sheet, like, which one he wants the most. He doesn't know. It's just total stream of consciousness. Now, what's interesting about this, for those of you who are more literarily inclined, this is the closest thing that you'll find to a soliloquy in all of the Bible. A soliloquy is those moments and plays where the main actor will kind of step aside and he starts speaking in first person and it gives you a window into his own experience, what's going on in his heart, the stuff that, that you can't see without reading a book. Maybe the most famo- famous is Hamlet's To Be or Not To Be. As he wrestles over the advantages of being conscious and living in this life. This is Paul's To Be or Not To Be. He is actually stepping aside in this letter for a moment and he's saying, all right, guys, I just want you to, to know my heart right now. I want you to know that I've got some amazing options in front of me because Christ is the win. Like, I'm going to list for you well, like what I put down as the pros and the pros of winning and, or excuse me, dying and living. So here's your list. And I just want you to be enamored with this, amazed by this at the moment. It is, it is fantastic to consider. Let's read it. And then we'll come back and fill in our little chart. Verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to be with Christ, to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample calls to glory and Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Notice that opening statement. It is so popular. It ends up on people's tombstones. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Here's your like first statement of the pros or the benefits of living and dying when Christ is the wind. Now, it's a memorable statement in English. It's even more memorable in Greek. Now, I'm not. <laughs> Sometimes I reference Greek and it sounds like I'm some type of Greek scholar. Uh, I know Greek about like some of you know Spanish. Some of you. And some of you know it very well. But I'm talking about like the rest of us. You know. But I do know enough to actually be able to catch when something probably would have stood out to the original audience versus um, not. And this is actually pretty clear. When you are reading this thing in the original language, it actually rhymes. There's, when it doesn't really technically rhyme, there's assonance. Assonance, there's these same words that you pick up on. And I've never done this, but I'm only going to do it today because I think you would want to know that Paul intentionally made this a memorable statement. Here's how it reads. 
Tozain Christos Kai Ta Apothnain Kerdos. Do you hear it? Tozain Christos Kai Ta Apothnain Kerdos. Zain Apothnain Christos Kerdos. To live is Christ, Zain Christos. To die, Apothnain, is gain. Kerados. Paul wrote this in a way that modern advertisers would call sticky. <laughs> it's sticky. He wanted people to remember it. He wanted it to be seared upon their conscience, upon their mind. So write emblazoned upon the top of your pro, pro list is this. Live equals Christ Die equals gain. Live equals Christ. Die equals gain. So what then does it mean for life to be Christ? In what way does life equal Christ? Paul is saying that he lives for Christ. His life is about Christ. And friends, this isn't just something like mystical. Like something ethereal, like a, a, a meditative practice of some kind. Like, this is very practical for Paul. Basically, what he's saying is he seeks to picture Christ in how he lives and proclaim Christ in what he says. He seeks to picture Christ in what he lives and proclaim Christ in what he says. For him to live is about Jesus. I mean, this is clear from the previous context and the following context. I mean, previously, he said that Christ is magnified or praised as he continues defending the gospel. Right? That's what he said what he cares about. I just want Christ to be known. That's what it means to live as Christ. I want Christ to be known, not me to be known. And then in the future, in verse 22, he's going to clarify that living means for him fruitful labor. Do you see that in verse 22? Basically saying he gets to harvest more fruit as he labors in the gospel. Like for him, he gets to win more converts for Christ. He gets to impact more people for Christ. You know, I've actually heard this, friends, from some of you who are getting older and you debate whether to retire now or retire later. And the conversation normally goes something like this. But if I kept working, I get to make more money. Now, that's not a bad thing. That money could be used for good things. But what I'm trying to point out is you understand that tension, right? Paul is saying like, hey, I know if I stay in this thing, I get more fruitful labor. I get to impact more people. Whereas some of us just prize a paycheck, he actually prizes people falling in love with Jesus. Like for him, that's the win. And so that's what he means by to live as Christ. If I keep living, that means more people are going to be turning to Jesus. That means more people are going to enjoy him even more. And he sees that as a huge plus. Not as an obligation, but as an opportunity, like he's just enamored with this. He says, could I live for anything else? But n n notice the other amazing option. All right, so life equals Christ, but then the other is death equals gain. <laughs> now, he presents this as another amazing alternative. I don't All right, you know, like this is actually really the standout option, but this one isn't too bad because you get to be with Jesus. But no, for Paul, it's actually like right on up there. He says, death is gain. In what way is death gain for Paul? The, the literal word in Greek is actually profit. 
what way is this a profit for him? What way is this the fruit of all his labor, it, that, like the thing that he's been working for? It's because it says, you keep reading in the text, that he will get to depart, this verse 23, and be with Christ, for that is far better. <laughs> what kind of morbid individual finds death to be enjoyable? One who views death as the departure of a cruise ship to be with Jesus. Departure. Departure. It, it literally, in that society, world, culture, whatever you call it, was the normal way you would speak of a ship being loosed from its moorings and set free to, to go over the horizon. It is interesting that both C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien capitalized upon this metaphor in their literature. They each had this idea of this, this ship that would leave this current state of earth and go to the better lands. Where do you think they got that? It's the way Paul speaks of death. He says, here's why it's gain, because it is the thing that transports me to be with Jesus. This is, this is odd. He has this odd love for Jesus. This isn't glass half full. This isn't put on a happy face. This isn't everything is awesome. This is absolute delight at being with Christ face to face one day. I, I want to like, I want to separate something here because I do not want you to think that Paul is just merely being positive. If you walk away from this place today, and you actually think that, you know what, I just need a little more positivity in my life. You know, I just, I have been a little too negative. I have been a little too pessimistic, and I just need some Norman Vincent Peale power of positive thinking. That's what I need coming out of it. No, friends, you have totally missed it. It has nothing to do with Paul just being positive. It is not just his outlook. It is the person with which he is enamored that changes everything. Did you know that people have had positive perceptions of death for thousands of years? That is not a Christian thing. It's not a Christian thing. It's a normal thing. In fact, Socrates' words and Plato's apology would have been known well to the intellectuals within that congregation, and he writes, and if there is no consciousness, but it is like, talking about death, a sleep when the sleeper does not even see a dream, death would be, listen to this, a wonderful gain, Caridos. Josephus. Josephus is a Jew. He speaks Greek. He kind of sold out to the Roman Empire. He writes a history of the Jews, and he uses this same term. Listen to how he says it. He's describing a, a group of outnumbered, soldier, outnumbered soldiers who, listen, and I'm quoting here, reckoned it as gain, keridos, if they died and a misfortune to live. Friends, um, people viewing death as a viable alternative to the negative circumstances that they face in this life is nothing new. It still persists today. For those of you who are my age, or at least from my generation, maybe one of the most popular suicides of just at least pop culture would be that of Kurt Cobain in 1994. April the 8th, 
The police find him dead, shotgun wound to the head. They determine that he actually died on April the 5th. And what you need to understand is this is the front man for Nirvana. I mean, like, he's posthumously inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Like, I mean, what he wrote turned platinum. And he's at the top of his game. I mean, it's 1994. They really show up in like 91. And he has it all. And he writes this note saying, you know, basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, I just, I just don't get that joy anymore from going out on stage. I feel guilty about that. I want it to end. Death is game. In fact, and I am quoting here, he says, I don't have the passion anymore, and so remember, it's better to burn out than to fade away. And so he burns himself out with a shotgun. Death is gain. People have viewed that through the centuries, but Paul is not saying that. Paul is not just miserable in his little jail cell and thinking, you know what? If I can't be out there among the people, if I can't actually enjoy the good life, if I can't have some freedom... This thing needs to end. He is not trying to escape. He is actually embracing something. For Paul and all who are in Christ, death is gain because it is the departure of the ship that takes us to be with Jesus. So those are Paul's prospects. You should have your list filled out by this point. Life, Christ. Death, gain. This is his... uh, heads I win, tails you lose. Inevitably, it doesn't matter for him. He knows exactly how this thing's going to end. He is delighted. Christ is the win. And so I now turn this out. Is Christ the win for you? We've seen Paul. We've seen what he's commending. But do you view Christ as the win, whether it be the option of life or the option of death? Friends, I want to warn you that you all, myself included, have what I would call a shallow default win. A shallow default win. We have this tendency to say, to live is, and we fill in that blank with something. There is something for which we predominantly pursue or crave. There's actually, among the ruins of ancient Carthage, an inscription carved by a Roman soldier. So this is around the time that Paul was writing, and I don't think that Paul was familiar with this, but it just shows that this focused mindset's been around for a long time. It says, to laugh, to hunt, to bathe, to game, that is life. For me to live is to hunt, go to the baths, and party. Really? According to our social media feeds, the secular heroes of our culture, for me to live is to enjoy our bodies, to make a name for ourselves, to accumulate wealth, to to dine well, to experience cool things. To make it more practical, sometimes we fill it in. For me to live is to golf, to work, to garden, to travel, to watch TV, whatever. All I'm trying to point out is that we have this shallow default. All of you, me, 
or living for something ultimately. And you better be careful because you're not naturally wired to prize Jesus above all. The, um, the late American novelist William Foster Wallace, thoroughly non-Christian, by the way, just throwing that out. Interestingly, he committed suicide at the top of his game. But in a commencement address at Moore or Kenyon College, excuse me, in 2005, he actually warns, listen to this, he warns these students about their default to prize or to see a win as or to worship is actually the term that he uses, uh, the wrong things. Now, this blows me away for two reasons. One, because Kenyon actually defines what I'm calling the win as worship. He uses the term worship. The second thing is that he actually recognizes that loving God is going, would have been superior to loving the other things. And just hear his word. The compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious things about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They are the default settings. And if that's your life, friends, if to live equals any of the stuff I just mentioned, it totally makes sense why to die is not gain. When Queen Elizabeth I, who was the idol of European fashion, was dying, interestingly, by the way, she was so concerned about her perception that even on her deathbed, scholars say that she had an inch of makeup on her face. That she was lauded as one of the best queens of all times, the one that like, took it back from Mary. I mean, like, she had a successful reign. She was obsessed with herself. And this is what she is reported to have said before she died. Oh my God, it is over. I have come to the end of it. The end. The end. Here's a lady for to me to live is power. For me to live is fashion. For me to live is notoriety and fame and, and success. And the best she can say at the end of life is, oh my God. It's over. Friends, death will only be gain to those for whom Christ is life. Death will only be gain to those for whom Christ is life. I have to ask. 
Is death gain for you? I mean, do you really, and I'm talking to Christian people, do you really look forward to spending time with Jesus? Now, I want to be clear. I'm not asking if you want to live in a mansion over the hilltop in that bright land where we never grow old. I'm asking if death is gain for you because you know it means to be with Jesus. Such a sentiment, such a craving, such a desire, such a countercultural appreciation of death only comes to those who are in Christ. I don't know how many people who have told me in the course of my measly 36-year life that they actually think they're going to end up in heaven merely because they didn't want to go to hell. That is not what is being described here. Of course you don't want to go to hell. Of course you would want to go float on clouds or do whatever people think they do in heaven. And if it only meant praying some prayer in Jesus' name after the evangelist, of course you would do that. But to prize Jesus to the degree that you would actually be enticed to let death come so that you could be with him, that is supernatural, countercultural. That is what John calls the new birth. Because naturally, and Kenyon got it right, the, the default settings aren't we see Jesus and prize him, we hear him and want to follow him. It is we cannot see his beauty, we cannot hear his word, like we want to live for ourselves and therefore death is a pretty horrifying prospect. Has, has Christ given you a passion for himself? That's what I'm asking. I'm not asking if it's always at 100%. I'm just saying that fundamentally is that desire within you because that is something that he must do. John Owen and his magisterial, the glory of Christ, clarifies this uniquely comforting aspect of life after death. This is what he says. This is mind-blowing. Music has no pleasure in it to them that cannot hear, nor the most beautiful colors to them that cannot see. It would be no benefit to a fish to take him from the bottom of the ocean filled with cold and darkness, and to place him under the beams of the sun, for he is in no way suited to receive any refreshment thereby. And heaven itself would, be, would not be more advantageous to persons not renewed by the spirit of grace in this life. You know what he's saying? He's saying if you don't love Jesus now, you're not just all of a sudden going to love him when you show up in heaven. It's like taking a fish from the bottom of the ocean and throwing them on the land and saying, welcome to heaven. You don't have it. This is something that Christ must give. Christ has captivated him. He is saying that this is the experience that is true of those who are in Christ. Paul is describing himself as a slave in Christ, and he has said of them that they are saints in Christ. You know what that means? In Christ, it means your whole world is Jesus and the world to come. So have you been born again? Do you see the beauty of Jesus? If you're telling me right now 
I can tell, by the way, some of you are looking at me, that this is not, not true of you. You cry out, oh God, please give me eyes to see. Or God, give me life. That is what it means to absolutely depend on him. For those in Christ, death and life are ultimately, listen to this, a win-win. In fact, and we'll conclude with this, Paul, he, he struggled to know which one he wanted more. Notice how he says this was the toughest decision for him. He says, I don't even know, look at your text again, I don't even know which ones to choose. Uh, choose is actually kind of a, a too strong of a word, if you see that there, because uh, it's not like you really have a choice. The defendant doesn't have the choice at how his trial is going to come out. <laughs> Defendants don't pick verdicts. So just keep in mind that the word choose here in other places could also be translated prefer. Paul is letting him know his preference. So here, my preference, I don't even know what my preference is. He's like, I don't even know which one I want to go to. He even says, like, I, I am torn up from the floor up. No, I'm just, he doesn't say that. That's my modern rendition. But saying that I am like pressed in between the two, like he said, I'm in a mess. I'm constrained. Uh, the, the word there is dominated. I'm being dominated by these two impulses, and it's tearing me apart. I don't even know which one I want more. That's how in love he is with Jesus. And, and this is what I want to ask you. Now, we're going to keep reading. But I want you to put yourself in Paul's situation for a second. If you did ultimately have a choice, let's give you a hypothetical vote. We've looked at our list. We've had life, death. We've noted the advantages of both. Let's say that you draw the line at the bottom, and now you're going to have the option of saying, you know what, I'm actually going to cast my vote in with this one because I can't have both. If you were Paul, which one would you pick? Now, now we, know that, we know it's a close decision. I want you to keep something in mind before you make your vote. Paul has seen the third heavens. He has had divinely previewed for him what it is to be in the presence of Christ. Oh, and by the way, one more thing. Paul's life is way more uncomfortable than anyone else's in this room. Like, he regularly gets the junk beat out of him for Jesus. <laughs> MacArthur said this uh, this week on a uh, Fox News, I forgot who he was interviewing, but it was the whole church thing. And uh, they asked him if he was willing to go to jail for this. And he said, uh, I've never had a jail ministry before. He said, my greatest hero in the faith came in and didn't ask what the local hotels were like. He would ask what the jail was like. <laughs> that's his life. All right, so knowing that that's the case, knowing that's the case, knowing that you've seen heaven, knowing that your life is very uncomfortable, to put it mildly, if you're Paul... Where do you finally put your vote? Oh, well, that's easy. It seems easy. You would think, oh, heaven, let's get out of this mess. But what does he say? Verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again.
was saying that with everything within me, knowing that I could probably conduct myself in a trial that would lead more toward death, or I could conduct myself in a way that that may enable me to be released. He says, I'm going to do everything within my power to delay heaven, to delay the divine departure, and just be with you. Because I know that you would benefit from it. And I know that it will help you proclaim the glory of Christ. He said two things. He says, I'm willing to forego heaven, if at all possible, for this momentary time, so that you will advance in the gospel and that you will enjoy the gospel. He says, your progress and joy in the faith. Friends, this isn't just a mother that sacrifices herself to stay up at night to feed the baby. This isn't just a father who sacrifices his time and energy to put food on the table for the family. Like, those things are all natural. They make a lot of sense. This is supernatural. I mean, it's veritably insane. Like, he knows what, it, like what his life will end up if he stays, and he says, you know what, I want to stay. I love you that much that if it'll help you be happier in Jesus, if it'll help the gospel go forward in your life, I'm willing to inconvenience myself in whatever way so that Christ can be glorified in my ministry together with you. If me coming back to you helps you delight in Christ a little more, bring it on. I'll live. I don't know, I don't know, friends, I just would ask this question, though, in light of that, (laughs) maybe this is a growth point for us all, for what are you willing to sacrifice for another brother or sister's advancement in and enjoyment of Jesus? For what are you willing to sacrifice for another brother or sister's advancement in and enjoyment of Jesus? (laughs) We're about to do this class on conscience next week. It's all about that. And you know where we're going to land in that thing? Ultimately, that we should be able to give up certain opinions and preferences and political views and time slots and financial advantages for the good of other people. But friends, Paul will not command us to do that which he himself does not do. He is willing, if it was at all possible within him, to actually forego an early entry into heaven itself for the spiritual well-being of other people. And he commends that to us. So this paradigmatic, exemplary, personal testimony can be represented in a simple visual. Paul depicts for us the passion of any and all who are in Christ by saying, basically, if you're in Christ, you're all about Christ. The visual that I would give you is this. Christ is not a slice of the pie. He is an essential ingredient that holds the rest of it together. Christ is not a slice of the pie that is your life. For those who are in Christ, he is an essential ingredient that holds it all together. By the way, essential means that without it, you don't have a pie. (laughs) Not just important, but essential. Let me visualize it even further. I could have, I guess, done a thing on the screen, but I don't roll that way. So you're going to have to actually imagine with me the circles of influence of your life. Now, what this text is not commending, don't worry, I'm bringing this thing home. I don't have anything else to exposit, so just hang with me here. 
What Paul's telling you not to imagine, what he is not commending is what I would call uh, the typical circles of influence, which would be this. Me, my family, you know, in a little larger circle, and then what I'd call church slash Jesus, and then community, which could include work. I'm telling you, from everything within me, that he does not represent a circle in there. You know what I did, actually? The, like, I, I used this, believe it or not, I actually used the text for my devotions. And not study, I just read through the text and then I pray. That's kind of like how my morning rolls. And the, the first time I saw this text this week, Monday morning, I immediately got out my little iPad and I drew the circles of influence writing me, family, church, community, and then in the thickest pen that I could wrote Christ over the entire thing. He's not a circle within, he is the whole thing. He is not a piece of the pie, he is is an essential ingredient baked throughout. So, how, how does that play out practically it means that it is not a Christ plus I think some of us have that kind of mindset like yes yes I love Christ plus I look for Christ plus other things no no no. It, it's Christ like Christ is it like he's everything so Justin what does that practically look like well when I think through self when I think through that center circle Christ is my highest good and goal Christ is my highest good and goal when I, when I think through family you know what I think Christ is their highest good and goal When I think through church, I think Christ is their highest good and goal. And guess what? When I think through community, and that includes your workplace, I think ultimately Christ is their highest good and goal. He pervades it all. The old hymn I grew up singing said it best, Mary James, all for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my being's ransomed powers, all my thoughts and words and doings, all my days and all my hours. You said, Justin, where do these other ambitions fit in? Where are the other things that my heart finds satisfaction? How do they fit in? Do we just no longer like those things? No, you put them under the lordship of Christ. Can I give you just a few examples as I flesh this out practically? Let's say that you really like stuff. Some people, for me to live is Christ plus stuff. I want some junk. I want house. I want money. I want stuff. All right. Are you saying, Justin, that if we're passionate about Jesus, we don't like stuff anymore? No, 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 no. All I'm saying is it's not Christ plus stuff. It is stuff in Christ. Even the material things of this life that I could enjoy, like a car that works versus one that breaks down all the time, I love that. I enjoy that. I embrace that because it helps my worship of Christ. It helps me like actually value him and serve others in Christ. Men, let me give you one. Some I know, even Christian men, especially when they get married, can live for Christ plus sex. So Justin, is this message calling us to be celibate? Do we no longer enjoy our wives? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that you enjoy Christ first and foremost, And the sexual relationship that God has given you to enjoy with your wife happens in the context of Christ. 
It's an expression of his goodness and his love towards you. What about respect? Some people just want respect, man. They, Christ plus respect. I want to be known. I want people to like me. Are we saying all of a sudden that we shouldn't give one rip about what anybody thinks about us? No, Paul clearly cared what other people thought about him, but it was in Christ. It wasn't Christ plus respect. It was respect in Christ. Why does he want respect? Because he knows that if people don't respect him, he's not going to have a platform to proclaim the gospel. Are you seeing the difference? Let me do one more just to kind of finalize this little exercise. Um, Let me talk about some good things. What what about um, those who would live to solve uh, world hunger or stop sex trafficking? That's, a, that's like a high and noble goal. It's not even like something that could seem selfish. But it's not even Christ plus those things. It is ending those things in Christ. <laughs> you know that there's actually like an eternal need that needs to be met. And if solving hunger or stopping sex trafficking enables people to know Christ, we're going to do it. Or if it represents a change that has already been made available in Christ, we're going to do it. But it's not the thing. Christ is the thing. He's the win. And I end with this. Christ is not a thing. He is the thing. We are not orbiting around the sun, S-O-N. Excuse me, we are orbiting around the sun, S-O-N. The sun does not orbit around us. I'm saying this is how it is, not just how it should be. This is how it is. Christ is life, death is gain for any and all who are in him. Now here's the deal, friends, and I'm done. You will either reject this premise, proving yourself not to be in Christ. Okay, these are your options. You reject what I'm saying today, you're not in Christ. Or... Or you will allow the Spirit to realign you as needed. You allow the Spirit to realign you as needed. Sometimes, friends, Christ may be our highest prize, but our flesh deceives us into thinking that something else is. Christ is still the highest prize. You just may have bought into the lie that something else was a little more important. And that's why you need this gathering. I'm not telling you today, like, oh man, you better work up some of that desire for Christ. You might end up going to hell. No, not at all. If you're in Christ, I just want you to know, Christ is already your highest prize. We're already orbiting around him. You've just been looking at it from the wrong angle, thinking that he's orbiting around you. So just remember that. Remember by faith today that he actually is your highest aim. He is your greatest good. And can I leave you with this? This challenge, you can do it in your small group. You can do it with your family. Frankly, I'm scared to do it, but I know I need to because I'm telling you. If you want to know how you're doing in this area, why don't you ask somebody that's close to you, whether it be a spouse or even a child in your home, and say, from your perspective, what seems to be at the center of the orbit of my life? Just ask. I dare you. From your perspective, what seems to be at the center of the orbit? of my life. Friends, if you're in Christ, whether you forgot it or not, be assured, Christ is. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would to you that 
this would be our wrestling match. That the, the, the most angst that we experience in any given week is whether to live for Christ or die for Him. Or give us that type of passion, give us that type of clarity. Or affect our hearts in this way. If there are those who do not know you to be the true center of the universe, or give them the eyes to see that this morning, the ears to hear it, or the hands and feet to walk in obedience to it. Or to help us even now, as we sing in praise of you, as we sing to the praise of your glory explicitly, as we proclaim you to be our only hope in life and death. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen.